D.E.V.A.C.O.R.D.A.L.A.R. My name is James Nagel. Welcome to The Irish Nation Lives. Determined to deal a hammer blow to British forces in Dublin, Michael Collins ordered the squad to wipe out an elite unit of World War I trained spies known as the Cairo Gang. For weeks beforehand, Collins's network had tirelessly gathered information confirming the identities of their top agents, and in a well-executed strike on the 21st of November 1920, Britain's intelligence operation in Dublin was crippled. A devastating demonstration of the IRA's capabilities, British authorities were forced to accept that they could not win the war and began laying the ground for peace talks shortly after. At least, that's the popular narrative of the events that took place on the morning of Bloody Sunday. One of the most violent and controversial acts of the War of Independence, justified as a piece of strategic brilliance that eventually won the war, the reality, as you can imagine, is a great deal more complex. By November of 1920, Dublin had been flooded with British intelligence agents with orders to identify and capture or kill leading members of IRA General Headquarters. They travelled with military raiding parties and seized documents which contributed massively to their understandings of the inner workings of the IRA and helped in identifying its principal officers, especially members of the intelligence department against whom they were now fighting a shadow war. Intelligence agents were present when Sinn Féin councillor John Lynch was shot dead in his hotel in late September, and again when the safe house Dan Breen and Sean Tracy were staying in was raided. A few days later, Tracy and a British agent were killed in a firefight on Talbot Street. Continuous raids in early November netted more valuable information, and Dublin Castle began to close in around the IRA's most important leaders, many of whom only narrowly escaped capture. Throughout the country, the Auxiliaries and the Black and Tans were carrying out a campaign of sanctioned reprisals against the civilian population. Insisting that the IRA was nothing more than a criminal minority, David Lloyd George told a meeting at the Guildhall in London on the 9th of November, By the steps we have taken, we have murder by the throat. By then, IRA General Headquarters had begun making plans for an operation to destroy British intelligence in Dublin before they themselves were destroyed. For months, the intelligence office, headed by Deputy Director of Intelligence Liam Tobin, had been gathering information on suspected spies and agents through any means they could. A network of informers was recruited to rival any that Britain had put together in the past. Maids reported on the odd hours kept by guests at hotels and residences throughout Dublin, bringing their rubbish to be searched by IRA intelligence officers, while waiters provided information on the patrons of various clubs frequented by the military. One of their most important sources was Lily Mernon, codenamed Little Gentleman, a typist for the Assistant Chief of Intelligence at Dublin Castle. She communicated directly with Michael Collins, and was able to confirm the identities and residences of a number of suspected spies, referred to by the IRA as the Particular Ones, or the Special Ones. With this information, it was time to strike. On the 17th of November, Collins wrote to the commander of the Dublin Brigade, Dick McKee, Have established the addresses of the Particular Ones. Arrangements should now be made about the matter. Little gentleman is aware of things. He suggests the 21st, a most suitable date and day, I think. A meeting was held at the Printer's Union on Lower Gardner Street the night beforehand to finalise the arrangements. Michael Collins, in his capacity as Director of Intelligence, and the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, presented the Minister for Defence, Cahill Brewer, with a list of over 50 names, possibly as many as 65, 
seeking authority to kill them. Brewer felt there was insufficient evidence against many on the list and signed off on about half of those named. An operation of this size was vastly beyond the capabilities of the squad, which numbered little over a dozen men. Dick McKee and Pather Clancy of the Dublin Brigade were also in attendance, and the list of those sanctioned for death was given over to them. After the meeting ended, McKee, Clancy, Collins and others went to Vaughan's hotel, but left when they became suspicious of one of the other guests. The hotel was raided shortly afterwards by the British military, and Connor Clune, who had arrived in Dublin only a few hours earlier, was arrested. Clune was a nephew of the Archbishop of Perth and was unconnected to the Republican movement. Later in the night, Dick McKee and Pather Clancy were also captured, informed on by an ex-British soldier who was later killed by the squad. All three men were taken to Dublin Castle. By then, however, McKee and Clancy had passed on the list and final orders to Sean Russell, the officer commanding the 2nd Battalion of the Dublin Brigade. Russell had been given overall command for organising the teams who would carry out the attacks, and had been identifying reliable men for the job over the previous week. At a series of meetings, many of the men were informed for the first time what would be expected of them the next morning. Some reports say that Russell gave anyone who had moral scruples over the operation a chance to withdraw, while Jim Slathery says that guards were placed at the doors to block anyone from leaving. By the morning of Sunday the 21st of November, the list of targets had been revised further. The Dublin Brigade had added some additional names and removed others, possibly because they were short men or resources. At five minutes to nine, the assigned time for the operation, teams of IRA men fanned out through the city, made up of volunteers from the local battalions and led by a member of the squad or an intelligence officer. Twenty targets remained, and the intention was to hit them unprepared. Numerous conflicting accounts have been published surrounding the events that unfolded over roughly the next half an hour. Twelve suspected intelligence agents were shot dead, along with two auxiliaries. Another five were wounded, one of whom died a few days later. Nine of the men were shot in their pyjamas. Lieutenant Donald McLean was taken into another room when he begged not to be killed in front of his wife, and Captain William Newbury's body was left hanging out of a window through which he tried to escape. His heavily pregnant wife had tried to barricade the door to their bedroom against the IRA and gave birth to a stillborn child a week later. Many accounts testify to the youth and inexperience of those involved. 17-year-old Charlie Dalton served as intelligence officer for the group that killed three and wounded another three at 28 Upper Pembroke Street. Vinnie Byrne, two days short of his 20th birthday, shot dead two men in their pyjamas at 38 Upper Mount Street. The 21-year-old future Taoiseach Sean Lamass was a member of the group that shot dead Captain Geoffrey Begali, a barrister who had served as prosecutor for a number of cases under the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act. Unlike ambushes or the running battles that had taken place in the streets of Dublin, these killings were carried out up close. In most cases, the men spoke with those they were about to kill, asking them where weapons or documents were. In the Gresham, Leonard Wilde was found lying face down in a pool of his own blood, part of his brain lying in front of him. A floor below him, the men who shot Captain Patrick McCormick in bed were standing so close to him that there were burn marks on his blankets. He had been shot in the head and wrist, most likely while lifting his hand to defend himself, but also in the neck and groin, and many others were also shot in unusual places. 
This and the high number of survivors is put down to the inexperience of many of those involved, who may have been handling a weapon for the first time. A volunteer at Upper Mount Street had to have his gun taken off of him because his hand shook too much to fire, while another shot his own reflection in a mirror at the Shelburne. Little is known about the various failures throughout the city. The group sent to kill Captain Noble on the Ranella Road found only a half-naked woman in his bed. Todd Andrews and the others spent half an hour putting out a fire started by Joe Dolan while he beat the woman and stole her jewellery. A number of missions were called off and at others the target was found to have moved recently or to have gone out early in the morning. To this day, debate continues as to the involvement of those who were shot in intelligence matters. The British immediately claimed that they were all courts-martial officials, while some of the IRA men involved would later declare that their conscience was clear because there was overwhelming evidence of guilt against all of them. Lieutenant McLean's landlord, Thomas Smith, was killed alongside him. Some accounts regard him as an innocent victim, while others say he had been identified as a spy by an informant within the Dublin Metropolitan Police. McLean's brother-in-law was shot just under the heart but survived. He had served in the First World War, but had no connections to British intelligence. At 28 Earlsfort Terrace, a man knocked at the door and asked for Lieutenant Fitzpatrick, but was told by the maid that there was no one staying there by that name. She explained that there was a Captain John Fitzgerald, and asked if he would like to speak to him instead. A number of men entered from the street, went to the room indicated to them by the maid, and shot Fitzgerald in the head. He had been a POW during the First World War, served as a flight commander in the Russian Expeditionary Forces, and had joined the Royal Irish Constabulary in Clare in June. A month later, an attempt was made on his life. He was in Dublin having his wounds tended to, and was unconnected to British intelligence. His father, Dr Joseph Fitzgerald, had served as an official for the Kappa White GA Club in Tipperary up until 1909. Patrick McCormack from Mayo was serving with the Royal Army Veterinary Corps in Egypt. He had been delayed from returning there with his family in October and was booked to travel in December. In March of 1922, his widowed mother wrote to Richard Mulcahy asking him to exonerate her son. He was a cousin of one of the founding patrons of the GAA, Michael Davitt, and she didn't want anyone thinking him a traitor. When asked about the matter, Collins, then chairman of the provisional government, wrote back to Mulcahy, You will remember that I stated on a former occasion that we had no evidence that he was a Secret Service agent. You will also remember that several of the 21st of November cases were just regular officers. Some of the names were put on by the Dublin Brigade. So far as I remember, McCormack's name was one of these. In my opinion, it would be as well to tell Mrs McCormack that there was no particular charge against her son, but just that he was an enemy soldier. We can see here the limitations of Collins's involvement with Bloody Sunday and his lack of control over the mission. He also admits that a number of the men shot were just regular officers. This was in stark contrast to his much more famous statement, which he had written a few months beforehand, a defence of the operation should it have been needed during the Anglo-Irish Treaty negotiations in London. My one intention was the destruction of the undesirables who continued to make miserable the lives of ordinary decent citizens. I have proof enough to assure myself of the atrocities which this gang of spies and informers have committed. 
perjury and torture are words too easily known to them. If I had a second motive, it was no more than a feeling such as I would have for a dangerous reptile. By their destruction, the very air is made sweeter. That should be the future's judgment on this particular event. For myself, my conscience is clear. There is no crime in detecting and destroying in wartime the spy and the informer. They have destroyed without trial. I have paid them back in their own coin. Modern research has been able to link only eight of the men killed by the IRA to intelligence work. Of those, the majority were of the most junior grade of agent. Tragic as the events in Dublin were, they were of no importance, David Lloyd George would later say when fears of a similar attack in London had abated. While the operation was nowhere near the success it has often been made out to be and did very little structural damage to British intelligence in Ireland, it caused sheer and utter panic in Dublin Castle. At Beggar's Bush, General Frank Crozier received notice of an attack at Lower Mount Street and rushed there with a lorry of auxiliaries. On arrival, he found one agent dead and another barricaded in his room. The IRA had fired 17 shots through the door but failed to hit him. IRA volunteer Frank Teeling had been injured and captured by passing auxiliaries and after ordering that he be taken to the military hospital, Crozier headed for Dublin Castle. There he found the gates blocked by traffic as officials and agents sought information or safety. Inside, the phones rang off the hook and reports circulated that 50 men had been shot dead across Dublin. That night, an auxiliary cadet who might have been transferred to intelligence work a month beforehand shot himself in the head. There was a spate of resignations in the days ahead. Many agents were withdrawn from Ireland over fears their cover had been blown, and those that remained took to living inside the castle for safety, severely limiting their ability to gather effective information. David Nelligan, a high-ranking informant in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, later said, Panic reigned. The attack was so well organised, so unexpected, and so ruthlessly executed that the effect was paralysing. The enemy never recovered from the blow. While some of the worst killers escaped, they were thoroughly frightened. Roadblocks were thrown up around the city in an attempt to catch those involved. A Gaelic football match between Tipperary and Dublin was scheduled to take place at Croke Park at 3pm, and the British military decided that they would surround the exits, raid the stadium and search everyone leaving the grounds. Shortly after throw-in, machine gun and rifle fire could be heard from the canal end as auxiliaries and black and tans ran onto the field. The military would later claim that they were fired on first and while some of the men who had taken part in the killings that morning had gone to Croke Park, a court of inquiry heard that the firing by British forces had been unprovoked and indiscriminate. In a minute and a half, Crown Forces fired 228 rounds of rifle and revolver ammunition at one of the exits, along with another 50 rounds from a machine gun. After Major Edward Mills, commander of I Company of the Auxiliaries, got the men back under control, the crowd was herded together and searched for the next hour. Eleven people had been shot dead or were trampled to death in the stampede to escape, and another three would die of their injuries in the days ahead. Three of the dead were under 14 years of age. That night, Dick McKee, Pather Clancy and Connor Clune were tortured and shot dead at Dublin Castle, 
with official reports claiming that they had been shot while trying to escape. Finally, what of the Cairo gang, the fabled spy unit said to have been wiped out on Bloody Sunday? The term is not mentioned in any witness statement contributed to the Bureau of Military History, and seems to have been used in print for the first time by Dan Breen in his autobiography. Dublin Castle erroneously believed that Breen was involved in the killing of Divisional Commissioner Gerald Smith in July, and his brother Osbert travelled from Egypt seeking revenge. Breen claimed the Cairo Gang was an elite group of agents recruited there to kill him and sent over with Smith, while later historians believed that the name derived from the Cairo Café on Grafton Street, which was frequented by British agents and officials from Dublin Castle. As for the famous picture of the Cairo Gang, it actually shows members of F Company of the Auxiliaries, labelled as the Special Gang by IRA Intelligence. None of these men were attacked on Bloody Sunday, and only one would die over the course of the War of Independence. It would appear that the Cairo Gang never existed. Bloody Sunday did not cripple British intelligence, but it did break their momentum and save the lives of high-ranking IRA officers who were near to being captured. British authorities were shocked that the IRA had the manpower and the intelligence-gathering capabilities required to carry out such a sophisticated operation, and were constantly worried of a repeat. Just a week after Bloody Sunday, the extermination of an auxiliary platoon at Kilmichael would deal a further dramatic blow to British morale and the idea that they were on the verge of victory. Calls for compromise grew on both sides, but the road to the treaty negotiations would be long and bloody. Ahorda, thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slong of all.